you'd like to open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, we're going to be continuing our series through this book. It's called A Roadmap for Raw Christians. And it's because the believers in Corinth at that time in the first century were coming out of an extremely sexually immoral and pagan culture, and they were new. They were first-generation Christians, and so they were raw. They were not uh, raised in the tradition of the church or in the faith, and so everything was new to them. And so the instructions that we find in 1 Corinthians reflect the, the state of the congregation. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 13, so the entire chapter is on page 954. 1 Corinthians 5, the entire chapter. And I'd ask you to join me in prayer before we go to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we praise you for your greatness, for your steadfast love, for your faithfulness. Father, we also thank you for your word, and we ask this morning that you would give us the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We want to hear and understand what this chapter means, and we also want to be able to apply it. We want to be able to take away truth from your word and live it out as followers of Jesus. So we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Johnny Rutherford. Many of you probably don't know who that is. He was a race car driver, and he won three Indianapolis 500 events from 1974 to 1980. And when I was in junior high, my social studies teacher had a tradition of taking the top contenders of the Indianapolis 500 and putting their names in a box and passing the box around the class and every student drew a name. And if you picked the winner of the Indianapolis 500, then on Monday you got a free bottle of pop that you could drink during lunch. I drew Johnny Rutherford's name. And I didn't know anything about the Indianapolis 500. The weekend came and I watched a little bit of the race and then I kind of lost interest and, and got busy doing something else. But when I got to school on Monday morning, I found out that Johnny Rutherford had won the Indianapolis 500, which meant that I had won the bottle of pop. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. I had never won anything in, in my life up to that point. And I'm pretty sure that was the last time I won anything from a drawing or an event or something like that. I was shocked. I couldn't believe it. And our, my social studies teacher, true to his word, took me to the teacher's lounge, put the money in one of these old school vending machines with the narrow glass door, and he pulled out a full-size glass bottle of Coke. And for the next five minutes in the lunchroom, I was king. And that was the last I remember about that shocking experience. I think we've all had something like that happen. We've all had some kind of shocking experience, maybe a, a surprise birthday party that you weren't expecting, or friend visits that, that you weren't expecting, or, or maybe you've won something, like a gift certificate, or an in-store credit, or a free pizza, or free coffee for a year, or something like that. It's shocking. 
It's unexpected. Shocking can be defined as a sudden mental or emotional disturbance, and the shock can vary in intensity. We can be mildly shocked, and we can be extremely shocked. But we all know what that's like, and since we all know what it's like, we also know that it's not just positive things that are shocking, it can be negative things too. Uh, if you lose a, a loved one or, or a family member or a friend unexpectedly, that can be quite shocking. If you lose your job and there was, there was no forewarning, it just kind of came out of nowhere, that also could be very shocking. Waking up to water in your basement can be shocking. Getting into a car accident can be shocking. It's unexpected and it produces that sudden mental or emotional disturbance. So we understand that shocking things can be positive or they can be negative. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see something that is shocking, and it's negative. It's negative. We, we learn that there was a man committing sexual immorality with his stepmother. This is shocking, and it may be shocking to you, especially if this is the first time through 1 Corinthians. Here it is. Uh, Paul receives this, this shocking report, and to be sure, we're, we understand that that Paul himself must have been somewhat shocked that it was going on, but that sin is not the most shocking part about this chapter, believe it or not. That's, that, that's mildly shocking regarding Paul and the church, but we, in one sense we, we kind of understand sin happens. The most shocking part about chapter 5 is the lack of church discipline. That is what has Paul shocked the most. Not the sin itself, but the, the church's lack of response. They knew it was going on. They allowed it to continue to go on. That's the real shock of this chapter. As we're going to see, it's all about church discipline. So the application is all about how faithful churches must practice church discipline. In fact, I'm going to say something that might be shocking if a church does not practice church discipline, then it's not a true church of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to explain why that's true, and I'm also going to get to the three reasons why church discipline is so important for us to practice today. So let's read this, 13 verses, chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in, the bo in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with an unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This chapter begins with a shocking report. A shocking report. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is tolerated, that is not tolerated even, even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So the, the first word actually can be translated as, as actually, meaning altogether or wholly. Or it can be translated as um, actually as if he's expressing shock. So it, the, the first way it works, uh, Paul may be shocked that this is going on, and, and of course that, that makes sense. But the other way it works too. If, he, if it means altogether or wholly, Paul is saying, everything's been reported to me. So I've got all the details. Uh, don't try to defend yourself. Don't try to pretend like you don't know what's happening. I've already received the whole report. It's been altogether told to me. So either way, and maybe a little of both, someone in the church, a professing believer, is sleeping with his stepmother. And we know it's not his biological mother because of what, otherwise it would have said his mother. So I, this isn't too hard for us to understand either. I mean, it's, the scenario would probably be the, the, the man's original mother is, is, has either been divorced or has more likely died, and his father has taken a new wife, probably a little younger than his original biological mother, a little closer in age to the man himself, and we have this relationship now happening. Paul says this kind of sexual immorality isn't even tolerated among pagans. And he's right. He's right. Even in Corinth, we've talked about how sexually immoral and, and idolatrous this first century Corinth was. Even they wouldn't tolerate this. The, the Corinthians would tolerate things like you know, general fornication, men keeping mistresses, adultery, homosexuality, prostitution, and sexual cultic practices. But this type of immorality, they would not put up with. In fact, we have extra-biblical sources that reveal that this was unlawful, that this was criminal activity with sentencing, including being deported to an island away from uh, culture and society. So Paul is telling them, look, unbelievers don't even tolerate this. This is shocking that it's going on and being allowed to continue in the church. Verse 2, and you are arrogant. Notice, Paul does not launch into some kind of punitive speech against the man himself. He's not taking the man outside the woodshed and ripping him upside one down the other. He focuses on the church. He says, and you are arrogant. This is happening, and you still think you're a strong, mature church. You still think that you're, 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 you're a prideful church and that you don't need instruction and that you've kind of arrived as far as Christians go. But it's their lack of action in response to this sin that proves that they're not all that they think they are. 
In fact, they're not spiritually mature. They're not spiritually strong. They do need instruction, and Paul is going to bring it. Ought you not rather to mourn? Instead of being arrogant, Paul says, you should be in mourning over this. You should be grieving that this is A, happening in your church, and then as you bring church discipline against the man, that also should be grieving. Church discipline is not fun. It's not a process that anyone looks forward to. He says, you should be grieving. Instead, you are arrogant. They went about their business like it wasn't happening, even though everybody knew it was happening. And that's shocking to Paul. At the end of verse 2, Paul wastes no time telling them exactly what needs to happen. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So this is a reference to excommunication, including being barred from the table. So then in verse 3, in the next paragraph, he moves to taking action. So these are the steps. Take these steps to remove this man from among you. So what we have in the next few verses are are specific, fairly detailed instructions on what they're to do to remove this man from their assembly and to address the issue. He says, for though absent in the body, Paul obviously is not physically there, which is why he's writing the letter. He said, I am present in spirit. And so spirit, if you see in in your text, in the copy, is not capitalized, which means they don't mean the Holy Spirit. I think that's correct. That's not what he's talking about here. Um, He's not also talking about some kind of -of out-of-body experience where Paul's spirit is transformed and, and kind of magically or spiritually present there with him in the room. That's not what he's talking about either. It's most likely a reference to him saying, I want you to take action as if I were there. I want you to render this decision knowing that you have my full support. If, if, the, if the matter has been altogether reported to him, and Paul knows all the details, it, it's as if he's saying, I really don't need to hear any more deliberation. I get it. And I want you to take this action as if I were there with you. I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. So no more deliberation. Here's, here's what you need to do. Verse 4. When you assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So we've got three things in that verse. The conditions for the action that they need to take, the action that they actually need to take, and then the purpose for the action that they need to take. So first, the conditions. When you, which is plural, assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, some at times have taken this to mean the entire church. I don't think that's accurate. I think what Paul has in mind here are the elders. The elders. When you, plural, meaning you elders, assemble in the name of the Lord Jesus. And here's why. I'm going to give you my reasons. Number one, this is church discipline. And Jesus has put the officers of the church in charge of handling church discipline. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And that's talking about the elders. The elders are the ones who are spiritual overseers, and they are the, one who, the ones who are to do the admonishing, or in other words, the warning or the rebuking of the church discipline. Likewise, Hebrews 13.17 
Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. That, that lines up very well with what we looked at in chapter 3, when Paul said these servant stewards, they are going to be judged, they're going to have to give an account to Jesus for the work that they do. It's the same thing here in Hebrews 13. So the first reason that Paul's most likely thinking about elders is because Jesus has assigned elders to be the one to carry out this type of work, and then it's the elders also who admit people to the table and, when necessary, bar people from the table. These are the ones that have been assigned this duty. So that's number one. Number two, Paul could have said, when you assemble as a church, he's not afraid to use that language, he's not afraid to get specific. For example, 1 Corinthians 11.18. He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church... So he says when you come together as a church, meaning the whole assembly, when he wants to, and he didn't say that here. He didn't say when you come together as a whole church. And moreover, it would be redundant to use that phrase uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus when talking about assembled worship. Is there any other kind? Is there any, other, is there any assembled worship in which the church does not gather in the name of the Lord Jesus? Uh, in contrast, there are times when uh, individual believers or, or two or three believers can and do get together for reasons other than assembled worship or performing the duties of, of in official capacity as elders. So that doesn't make sense. And then thirdly, the third reason is because the process that Paul is commanding here is the same as the process that Jesus commands in Matthew 18. And Jesus has elders in mind in Matthew 18 when he says, tell it to the church. If you remember Matthew chapter 18, part of that chapter is Jesus' instructions to the church on how to deal with sin. And it begins with one believer going to another believer that is walking in sin, that's self-evident, it's not just, I think there's something going on here, but there's, it's self-evident, it's ongoing, it's repeatable. And one believer goes to another believer and, and calls them out on it and says, hey, you're in sin, I want to warn you as a brother, don't do that, that's wrong. And he says, if the believer that's sinning listens to you, in other words, agrees with you, then good, move on. He repents and, and we're all good here. If not, bring along one or two witnesses not witnesses to the actual sin, but witnesses who can bear witness to who's right. Either this person is right and say, no, it's no big deal, there's no sin going on here, or the one or two witnesses can agree with the one bringing the charge and say, no, he's right, that is sin, you need to stop, get out of there right away, repent. We're now both joining this first person and warning you. If the person listens, great. End of, end of process. We all move on. If the person does not listen to the two witnesses, then we move on to the third step. And this is what Jesus says in that third step. This is Matthew 18, 17. If he refuses to listen to them, meaning the original accuser and the two witnesses, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as Gentile and tax collector. So when Jesus says, tell it to the church, again, he most likely does not mean the entire congregation needs to weigh in and deliberate and, and try to render judgment, because again, the elders are responsible for carrying out church discipline, and because in the very next verse, Jesus talks about how many people are, are to be in this process. 
Look at the very next verse. After 17, we've got 18 through 20. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, same as 1 Corinthians 5, there I am among them. So these verses are an encouragement to the overseers of the church. And Jesus is saying, as you gather in my name for the, the purpose of church discipline, I want you to confidently move forward and know that the decisions that you render are spiritually binding. This is a valid process. So twice, Jesus says two and then two and three. So does that sound like he wants the whole congregation to be agreeing and and gathering in his name and assembling? No, it sounds like local elders at a church. So the, the conditions for the action are when they are assembled, meaning the elders, in the name of the Lord Jesus, which is the same as Matthew 18. That's what he says in 1820. And my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus. So again, my spirit is present as if I am there with you. With the power of our Lord Jesus. He puts those words there because when they are gathering and assembling in the name of Jesus as the officers and overseers of the church to administer church discipline, their decisions carry the weight and power of Jesus. This is one of the two keys of the kingdom. It's the preaching of the word and church discipline. Jesus is saying, when you you assemble for this purpose, this is one of the keys of the kingdom. And these decisions are spiritually binding. Now this is different than uh, a non-church, a non-spiritual entity gathering together. For example, the city council, or maybe your local school board, or lawmakers, um, they carry lawful way, they carry judicial weight as far as civil law goes, but they're not spiritually binding. They're not, they're not assembling in the name of the Lord Jesus to, to render a spiritually binding decision. That is true when the elders and the overseers gather for this purpose. That's what both Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5 teaches. Alright, so those are the conditions. Now we move on to the action. The action is you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. So deliver to Satan this figurative language. It doesn't mean cuff him and hand him over to to this this devil character. They're talking about excommunication. They're, They're talking about handing the ongoing unrepentant believer over to the realm of of Satan which is the world. You're you're being cut off from Christian fellowship. You're being cut off. The kingdom of God is being closed to you and you are being relegated to to the world. And then the phrase for the destruction of the flesh. Some people take this, some some, uh, teachers and New Testament scholars take this to mean actual physical manifestations of God's judgment. Um, physical disease, physical illness, up to and including death. Okay, that's, that's possible. That we're, that's not out of the realm of possibility at all that Jesus might bring some sort of physical judgment on an ongoing unrepentant sinner who refuses to listen to, to the church. But I think we've got a better option. Paul uses flesh in the New Testament and in 1 Corinthians to talk about our, our fleshy spiritual nature. 
uh, how, how we are before we're in Christ. In fact, 1 Corinthians 3, if you recall, says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. He doesn't mean you're still in a physical body. He means you're still spiritually mature. You're still worldly. You're still back there in that fleshy, spiritual nature behavior that characterized your life before you came to Christ. So the best approach here in our passage is to remember that one of the purposes of church discipline is to restore someone back into the fellowship of Jesus Christ and his church. So Paul wants this man's fleshy, sinful nature to be destroyed because he wants his spirit to be brought back into fellowship. And this matches the immediate context. Look at the very next line. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's the purpose. That's, that's the purpose of the actions. We have the conditions, we have the action, and then the purpose is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's pronouncing this judgment. He's commanding this action so that the man will repent and turn back to follow Jesus Christ. So we've seen the shocking report. We've seen uh, take these steps. And now for the rest of the chapter, we're going to see Paul bring some pointed instruction on church discipline. The shocking part to Paul is not necessarily that the sin is happening, but that the church didn't do anything about it. And so he's going to bring very specific instruction to make sure it doesn't happen again and to make sure they get it right from this point forward. So verse 6, he begins by stating the obvious. He says, your boasting is not good. How can you continue to call yourself a faithful church? How can you continue to pretend that you're, you're prideful and you're better than the other churches around? From an elder standpoint, this is a complete fail. A complete fail. He said, no, you're not strong and healthy. You're sick. You're sick. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's saying, you do realize that if you don't take care of this, it's just going to get worse. That's what he means by the leaven illustration. This isn't just going to go away on its own. You need to do your job as overseers. By ignoring it, instead of dealing with it, the elders are sending the message that it really doesn't matter what church members do. And, you know, they, they can do whatever they want. Nobody's really going to call them out on it. Paul says, no, you need to, you need to take the right steps here. You, this is not going to go away on its own. So verses 7 and 8 bring in Passover language. And Paul's using that as, as a jumping off point, as an illustration and a little bit of background would help for this. So the, so the Passover was an old covenant celebration. Remember, it was inaugurated at uh, the Exodus. And this is where they put the blood of the sacrificial lamb on their doorpost so that God would pass over that household and their firstborn would not die. Um, part of the Passover celebration was ridding the home of any leavened bread. They were to, to scour the place and completely get rid of it, dispose of it. In fact, if anybody was found in possession or eating of leavened bread during Passover, they were cut off from Israel. Okay? Big deal. So Paul's using this uh, leavened and unleavened bread language as an illustration to drive home his point. He's telling the church, you really are unleavened. 
You really are the people of God who have been delivered from bondage to sin. You are this new people of God called out. Start acting like it. Don't, don't remain in that, that, un, that leaven, that, that old bread that, that you used to be a part of. Come into who you are. Live out your identity as the people of God. Get rid of the old bread, meaning your life outside of Christ. Be the new bread that, called, that God has called you to be. Let us celebrate the festival, not meaning that Christians are to celebrate Jewish Passover. That's, that's not true. Um, we're, not, we're not called to celebrate that. Um, we're not called to continue to observing it. But instead, he's using this as an illustration for the new life that you have in Christ. Believers are to celebrate their new status of being in Christ. And they do that by faith and with sincerity and truth is the language he uses. So they would be expressing sincerity and truth if they walked consistently in Christ and did not tolerate this kind of ongoing unrepentant sin in their presence. It would be insincere and false if they knew about it and just kind of let it keep going on and didn't pay any attention to it. It would be insincere and false to profess to be in Christ and yet at the same time just turn a blind eye to something like this in their midst. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter. This tells us that Paul has written to the church before. If you remember at the very beginning, I said we're, we're coming in and part of a conversation between the church and Paul. This is not the first time they've talked. And so here again, we've got evidence. There was another letter. So this is 1 Corinthians, but it's not the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, do not associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. So Paul's clarifying earlier instruction. He says, I didn't mean unbelievers when I wrote to you that first time. Please hear me. I, that's not what I meant. And then he adds a few other sin categories to show he just doesn't mean just sexual sins. He's talking about any unbeliever walking in ongoing sin Paul says, no, I'm not saying that. Um, he's saying, look, if, if you were to try to follow that kind of instruction, you'd have to remove yourself from the world. He said, that's not going to work. It would also make evangelism very difficult. And then he says, verse 11, here's what I mean. But, but now I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So we've got the same vice list as verse 10, except the added reviler and drunkard. So sexual immorality, such as the man in question, but also any other form of, of sexual immorality. Greed, meaning coveting money. Idolater, worshiping false gods, or mixing the worship of, of, of Christ and Christianity with the other pagan religions. Or excuse me, reviler, insulting others, slander, character assassination, that type of thing. Drunkard, drinking to excess. Swindler, to gain by dishonest means or stealing. So he, he presents this vice list, and he, what he's saying is any of these things, and, and we're to take that by extension, anything that the Bible calls sinful, if somebody's walking in that, if they're practicing that, and they're refusing to, listening, to listen to the church and, and to others if they say, no, 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 I'm going to live my life however I want to live it. Back off. Don't tell me what to do. Paul says, that, that type of person, 
who's claiming to be in Christ, yet at the same time is refusing to listen to Christ, he says, do not associate. Associate means to mix together as when mixing ingredients for medicine. That's the word origin. So to mingle together with, to interact with, to keep company with. So to not associate with someone is the opposite. To withdraw from someone, to come apart from, to separate out from. Paul's saying, do, do nothing that would acknowledge such a person is a brother or sister in Christ. Don't, don't give them the impression that things are fine spiritually with them. And, and do nothing as, as a believer that, that the watching world would see that would give the impression that you consider them a brother or sister in Christ. And then he says, not even to eat with such a one. In the first century, to, to have table fellowship with someone is to not only show them that you keep company with them and that you hang out with them socially, it was approving of that person. If you, if you ate with someone, if you sat down at table with someone, that means the, this person's my friend, I, I'm fellowshipping with, fellowshipping with them, and I approve of who they are, their walk of life, and everything that goes along with that. And Paul commands them, don't do that. Don't do that. Could we still greet people on the street? Absolutely. Should we use polite language with someone who's excommunicated? Yes. Protect them from harm? Yes. Warn them of danger? Yes. All the things that would characterize our interactions with general unbelievers or strangers, we can, we can interact with, with someone who has been excommunicated. We can and should pray for them. We can and should call them to repent and to turn back. But what we cannot do as we seek to apply this is interact and treat them like nothing has changed. That's, that's not acceptable. We can't do that. We can't move forward in our relationship with someone as if nothing's different at all. That's just, otherwise, what is this, what is this here for? We, we, we can't do that. We're not, we're not also going to, after a couple weeks or months, decide, you know what? It's been long enough. I think I'm just going to drop this whole do not associate command and I'm, I'm going to go back to interacting with them like, like we used to be friends before. No, that's not up to us. That's, that's not on us to decide when we can stop obeying this command. It's really up to the person. It's when they repent and it's when the elders admit them back to the table. Verse 12, two rhetorical questions. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Meaning outside the church. Nothing. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Yes. Verse 13, God judges those outsider. Uh, God judges those outside. Paul's saying, don't worry about the unbelievers. Don't worry about everybody who's out in the world. That's not your job. Don't try to police the world. God will take care of that. God will judge every person perfectly, um, exhaustively, and accurately um, for eternity. That, that's something God will take care of. Now, of course, this does not mean that we are to abandon all discernment and that we can't decide whether or not something's good or bad or, or good or evil or that 
we have to approve of, of any and all behavior that the world has. No, that's not it either. We are, we are called to discern between good and evil. It is perfectly okay to say that is wrong and, and to, to not agree with anything that's sinful. That's, that's something that's perfectly fine. And then he ends the, the chapter by saying, purge the evil person from among you. Do you see how that's in quotation marks? It should be, it is in the ESV anyway. It's in quotation marks because it occurs in Deuteronomy several times. So Paul's drawing on the Old Testament. When it occurs in Deuteronomy, it's usually at the end of laws for the covenant community. And it's usually talking about capital punishment. Not just kick them out of the community, but execute them. The sins include someone who would encourage the people of God to worship other gods, for encouraging or suggesting idolatry, for practicing idolatry, for worshiping other gods, for lying or bearing false witness, for being a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey his father and mother, for sexual immorality, for stealing people and selling them into slavery. After every one of those commands, we see the phrase, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. So when Paul brings us in and concludes his teaching to the church with this quotation from Deuteronomy, he's saying, just as this was important in the Old Testament, it's important in the New. Just as it was important to God that his covenant community remain pure in the Old Covenant, it's important to God that his people remain pure in the New Covenant. Paul's saying, that hasn't changed. And that's why church discipline is important. He doesn't want these raw believers in Corinth to ever make this mistake again. So he spends a good amount of time on instructing them in church discipline. He said, you must practice it. To not do so is shocking. If we had to summarize chapter 5, We'd say something like this. Paul tells the raw believers in Corinth that he's become aware of the man who is practicing incestuous sexual immorality within the church. In response, he commands them to exercise church discipline and excommunicate the man. He concludes the matter by explaining why churches must practice church discipline and how believers are not to associate with people who call themselves followers of Christ but persist in ongoing unrepentant sin. So at the beginning of the message I said, this may be shocking, but if a church today does not practice church discipline, then they cannot be considered a true church of God. And I wanted to back that up. I wanted to show why that's true. I'm going to read a quote, and this is from the Belgic Confession, Article 29. Now the Belgic Confession has been around for a while. It, it was written in the 1500s, shortly after the Reformation, and since the 1600s, there have been pastors and elders and church officers who have been subscribing to this, meaning taking vows, saying, I believe in this. So this has been universally understood by, by the church for hundreds of years to be true. And we still subscribe to it today, the Belgian Confession. The, the marks by which the true church is known are these. If the pure doctrine of the gospel is preached therein, if she maintains the pure administration of the sacraments as instituted by Christ, if church discipline is exercised in punishing sin, in short, if all things are managed according to the pure word of God, all things contrary thereto rejected, and Jesus Christ acknowledged 
as the only head of the church. So this is what's so shocking. If a church is not practicing church discipline, or any one of those other three marks, it's not a true church. Uh, they, they put church on a sign out in front, but that doesn't mean they're a true church of Jesus Christ. Now there are churches today that are calling themselves churches that don't practice church discipline. And we need to understand, as shocking as it may seem, they're not a church. They're not a church. There are churches today with no membership or, or meaningless membership. Uh, I, I knew a man one time who, who approached me and we were talking about church membership and he said, well, when we were down south, I went to such and such a church and I asked the pastor about becoming a member and the pastor said, if you're here on Sunday morning, you're a member. And this person said, I like that. I said, well, that's not what membership is all about. That's not what it means at all. In fact, that's, that's not even uh, membership any way you describe it. Um, if a church is, has no membership, then there's nothing to, to prevent someone to engage in, in the Lord's Supper or not. There, there's, no, there's no fencing at the table. There's, there's no means of, of church discipline. How can you discipline someone if they're not a member of your church? How can you bar someone from the table if they've never been admitted to the table? The answer is you can't. It's impossible to administer church discipline without membership. But there are churches that are doing that. And here's the thing. If all three of these marks go together, the right preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, and church discipline. If you're not practicing church discipline, then that means you're not practicing the Lord's Supper correctly. If there's no way to bar some from the table, and if you don't admit people to the table, then, then you're not practicing this correctly. You're not fencing the table. And if you're not doing either one of these, then that means you're not preaching true doctrine on either of these things. Unless you're preaching in contradiction to your practice, I suppose that's possible. But generally, you're, you're not going to do any of those three things correctly. They go together. Now, you may be shocked to learn how many churches in the United States are not legitimate churches. If we look at it through the lens of Scripture, what Jesus Christ has commanded, there are several. And it really doesn't matter how impressive the church looks from a worldly standpoint. It doesn't matter if, if there are these large, prestigious churches on the East Coast that have been around since, since the 1700s. That doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you've been pronounced a historical landmark. No, you're still not a church. It doesn't matter how many campuses a church boasts. It doesn't matter how many services they offer, or how many thousands attend each weekend, or how much they give back to the community. If they're not practicing these things, then they can't call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ. Now that in itself is shocking enough, but what is shocking, what is even more shocking to me personally, is that there are people who call themselves Christians and who say they believe in the Bible and yet go to one of these churches that don't practice church discipline, that don't administer the sacraments correctly, and that don't have right preaching. You need to know that at Peace Community Church, all officers are required to read a handout on Matthew 18. They're required to read and understand what church discipline is, what the process looks like, we have posted on the wall right outside the sanctuary a rescue ship diagram of all the different components of what Peace Church is, and one of those components is church discipline. It's clearly displayed. So you need to understand that we do practice it. Now, it's something, not something we practice all the time. It's only as needed. 
but when it is needed, we're committed as a church to practicing church discipline because Jesus Christ has commanded it. So that alone should be enough. That alone should be enough regarding to answer the question, why is church discipline important? But I'm going to hit on three reasons. We often hear that church discipline is restorative. You may have heard someone say something like this. The purpose of church discipline is to restore the sinner back into communion and fellowship with Jesus and his church. That's correct. That's true. But it's not the only purpose of church discipline. If you look at this passage, Paul is not just concerned about the man. It is clear from verse 5 that he, he believes and he wants the, the, the man to be restored, his spirit to, res, to be restored in Christ Jesus. But he is much more concerned about the purity of the church and to make sure the church understands that they must practice it and that they don't make the same mistake in the future. Two verses are saying he's aware of what's happened. Three verses tell them what needs to happen. But eight verses explain why it's necessary and how to practice it in the future. Paul is much more concerned about the purity of the church and the honor of Jesus Christ. So here are the three reasons. Number one, for the glory of God and honor of Christ. Number two, for the purity of his people. And number three, for the spiritual good of the offender. That is one of the purposes. So first, for the glory of God and the honor of Christ. If we look at 1 Peter 1.16, the Bible says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. It also says in the Old Testament, Leviticus 11.45, For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. So we see that consistency between the Old Covenant and New. God is still concerned about the purity of his covenant people. We, the church, are God's people. When a church decides not to practice church discipline and allow ongoing unrepentant sin to exist, it brings dishonor to God and dishonor to Jesus Christ. The lack of dealing with the sin is like the church telling God, we don't want to be holy. We're okay with this existing in our midst. I don't think we want to follow your command on church discipline, God. That is dishonoring. That is scary. Maybe even shocking. But it also dishonors God because a watching world gets a false view of what the church is. It dishonors Christ in his name because an unbeliever on the outside looking at the church takes a look and says, oh, well, they look just like us. There was a new pastor who came to a church and didn't know anything, of course, about it. He was brand new and he came there and one of the deacons called him up and said, Pastor, I need to resign. And he said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. He said, yeah, and then further explained, he said, my, my girlfriend's pregnant. He said, oh, all right, well, let's, let's talk this face-to-face. -face. I, you know, I want to hear what's going on and, and try to minister the best I can. So he said, all right. He said, why don't I come over? And he went over to his house, and when he arrived at his house, he realized he was living with his girlfriend. And then later on, at the, the next time they gathered it, as, a, as a board of elders, he said, well, you know, this deacon so-and-so is resigning, and he explained the details, and he said, 
And apparently he was he was living with her. And they all kind of went, yeah. He said, what do you mean, yeah, yeah? He says, did you know that? And to a person, he went around the room and they said, yeah, I knew that. Yeah, we knew that. And then he went to the deacons and he said, did you know that? And they said, well, yeah, we all knew that. It turns out the entire congregation knew that this was going on, except the pastor. And in fact, the whole community knew it was going on. When, when an unbelieving, watching world looks at the church, and they see the church behaving just like the unbelie- unbelieving world, it's like they're saying, huh, hypocrites. That's another reason I don't need to go to church to be a good person. They're just like me. Some new life Jesus has given you. You're no different than the rest of us. That's dishonoring to Christ. A church that doesn't practice church discipline brings dishonor to God and the name of Christ. So that's number one, for the glory of God and the honor of Christ. Number two, for the purity of his people. Paul says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's talking about something that we should all probably understand. Sin likes company. Sin likes company. Think back in your life and try to remember, has there been a point at any time in your life where you decided to give in to sin only after you saw someone else give in to sin? Can, can you, especially maybe when you're a student or a young adult, can you think of a time in your life where someone else calling themselves a believer sinned and in your mind the threshold just got lowered a little bit and you thought, you know what, if, if, it's, if they did it, it must not be that bad. I, 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 guess, I guess I could do it too. Sin likes company. When no action is taken by the elders regarding any ongoing unrepentant sin, the congregation sees that and says, well, I, I guess it's okay to have that type of thing going on in our church. I didn't know that, but I guess that's okay. Well, that's good to know. It's good to know that I'm not going to get called out for my sin if, if it ever becomes public. After a while, a church like that that's not practicing church discipline, we start to see unbelievers and nominal Christians start to be attracted to a church like that. And, and, and word gets around, oh, didn't you hear, if you go to that church, yeah, um, Dan and Michelle, they, they were living together, and, uh, you know, they became members, and the pastor married them, and it was, it was no big deal. Oh, okay, good to know. Maybe we'll check it out. A church that habitually does not practice church discipline, over time, there's just a little leaven, leaven's a whole dough. There's no way to avoid it. Eventually, the purity of that congregation will diminish. That's what Paul's talking about. I think we all understand how a rusty car works. If you see a rust spot over the wheel well of your car, it's not going away on its own. You can't just ignore it. And you can try to paint over it, but that's just going to temporarily kind of hide it. If unless you remove that and remove the, the rusty metal, it's just going to spread. You can't, you can't stop it. It's the same thing with sin, ongoing unrepentant sin in a church. If, if someone is engaged in that and, and the church continues to let it go, it will spread. And, and you can try to paint over it by ignoring it, but that's, that's not going to take care of it for long. It will spread. So for the glory of God and the honor of Christ, for the purity of his people, and finally for the spiritual good of the offender. And I hope we all understand this, but I want to make a clarification just to make sure we're on the same page. 
We are not talking about bringing church discipline on somebody who sins for the first time or someone who uh, is struggling with sin and is broken over their sin. Even somebody who's caught in, in, a, in a habitual sin, if they are repenting and fighting it and they're, they're doing everything in their power to resist it and they're still overwhelmed and they still finally give way to the sin, that's not what spiritual uh, church discipline is for. We're talking about someone who is defiantly engaged in ongoing, unrepentant sin, who's had several attempts by, by the church to, to gracefully approach them and give them ample opportunity to repent. We're talking about the very last stage of church discipline. That's where they were at in 1 Corinthians. When the elders have to excommunicate someone, they don't do it because they're walking around just kind of looking for an opportunity to hammer somebody. That's not it at all. It's an unpleasant process for everyone, including the elders. This is something that will keep your elders up at night. This, this is something very disturbing. It's also not an every day or an every week or an every month or even an every year type of thing. In fact, faithful churches could go decades without ever having to get to this point. But if it's needed, it must be done. Congregational members should not be shocked if they hear that their elders had to administer church discipline. Instead, they should be shocked if they're not administering church discipline when needed. They're doing it because Christ commands it, it honors him, they're doing it to protect the purity of the church and in prayerful hope that the effect of removing the offender from fellowship will lead to repentance. I want to close with considering this. The more someone loves Christ, the greater impact church discipline is going to have on their walk. I mean, think about it. If, if Jesus isn't all that important to you and if then being removed from his table and, and his church isn't really going to bother you that much. And I've seen this happen. I've, I've seen professing believers go down this, this spiritual discipline path, uh, church discipline path, and when they finally get to the end, what usually happens is they just leave. They, they usually don't stick around to be disciplined. They just say, well, forget it. It doesn't matter to me if I'm a member here, so they just leave and they take off. It doesn't matter. Being removed from the table or not coming from the table, eh, no big deal. But if you genuinely love Jesus and you are truly regenerate and you worship him with your whole heart, if you understand the truth that there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ and his church, then being removed from fellowship and being handed over to Satan is the worst possible thing that you can imagine. It's absolutely catastrophic and you will do anything to avoid that. Someone who is truly in Christ and, and finds themselves in this final step would respond with repentance, full confession. They would do everything the Bible says to do. They would throw themselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ. They, they, would, they would pray and say, Lord, help me. I never want to go down this road or any similar road again. Please forgive me. Similarly, if you think the church is some kind of local gathering of like-minded people who enjoy getting together once a week because they're religious and they like singing and praying and hearing sermons and drinking coffee together, but being part of it is no, has no real spiritual consequences one way or the other, then being excommunicated will not be that big of a deal. And in fact, the ongoing center will just go down the street to a place that calls itself a church 
but doesn't practice strict discipline. But if you understand that Jesus has established his church and he has placed elders in his church to administer the, king, the keys of the kingdom, which is the word of God preached and church discipline, and that to be excommunicated is to have the kingdom of God closed to you, then you're going to respond to church discipline with urgent repentance. Church discipline is not some spiritually powerless gesture by a few men in a local church. It is, when done properly according to scripture, an administration of the power of Christ by which the kingdom of heaven is closed until the person under discipline repents. Not because the elders have any power in and of themselves, but because Jesus is there among them and has given them the key of church discipline so that whatever they bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever they loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Amen. Heavenly Father, we, we come across a passage like chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, and it is shocking. And yet, it is your revelation to us, containing teaching, containing commandments, that we are to follow as your people. Father, we ask that we would walk away from this passage with a better understanding of church discipline, that we would understand its necessity, and Father, that we would have the, the same heart uh, that, that you have, that we would want to honor and glorify your name, that we would want to maintain the purity of the church, and that we want, would want to see every wayward member be brought back into full fellowship with Jesus Christ and his people. Amen.